Well, good morning, everybody, and a special welcome to all of you joining us online. Uh, I guess that would be all of you. Well, what a week. It started with nervousness and ended with fear, from concern to closures. And whether that's gyms or schools or businesses or March Madness or golf tournaments, life as we know it has been disrupted. Well, that raises a question. How should we respond to that? Well, I've thought a little bit about it, and I've got a few uh, helpful hints for you. First of all, remember that we are weak, frail, and not in control. I don't know about you, but I like to live the illusion that I am in control. I like to look around at things and see that I can handle them. Life's going as I want it to go, and I feel a sense of peace that comes when I think that I'm in control. But boy, it doesn't take too much to remind me that life is way out of my control and that I'm really weak and I'm really frail. And so whether it's looking at your uh, retirement portfolio and realizing you're out of control, whether it's wanting to stay in shape and realizing your gym's closed and you're out of control, or a myriad of other things that remind us that, yeah, we really are weak, we're frail, and we're out of control. But I think that in the midst of that knowing, God wants us to look beyond our failure and our weakness to his power and his glory and his grace. So glance at our weakness and gaze at his strength. Glance at our being out of control, but gaze at God being in control and relax and trust. The second thing I thought about was, it's a pretty good reminder that it still isn't good for people to be alone. Social distance, isolation, quarantine, they may be necessary, but they're unnatural. We were built to be in community because we were built in the image of a community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, how can we live with social distance and be safe and yet try to live out some of that community? Well, technology's a big help. We're able to be the church while not being at our church building this morning because of technology. How about if each of us commit to this week reaching out to someone, reaching out to three people that may be isolated, may be alone, may be lonely, but do it in ways that technology allows us to do it. Send a text, make a phone call, FaceTime, post something on Instagram, Facebook. Let's see if we can leverage technology to experience some of the community that God wants us to have. Oh yeah, one last reminder for me. Trade up. I don't know about you, but this week has been a pretty good reminder that I tend to live for the trivial and the temporal, not for the ultimate and the eternal. And so why don't you trade up? I don't know what it is that you're tempted to kind of build your life on. I think this is an example of God saying, why don't you trade up? Trade up those things that are temporal and ultimately trivial for something that's eternal and something that's ultimate. Well, Carlos mentioned that we're starting a new series today that we're calling Fake News. And that doesn't have anything to do with CNN or Fox or with Trump or Biden or Bernie, none of that. It has to do with the Bible. But in case you haven't realized that we live in a world that continually pumps out fake news. I'd be willing to bet that many of you have received, some, have received some fake news about the coronavirus this week. Did you get the email, supposedly from the Stanford Hospital Board, 
that said, here's the test. Take in a deep breath and hold it for 10 seconds. <gasps> and if you could do that without coughing or wheezing, you don't have the virus. Fake news. If you drink water every 15 minutes, it'll wash the virus right out of your system. Fake news. You know, sometimes when it comes to the Bible, fake news can be benign, even humorous. But other times, fake news about the Bible can be dangerous. For example, people believe fake news, attribute that to God, and then somehow think that God's character is really according to the fake news rather than the reality. So the purpose of this series is to help us think about the real news of who God is, what he's like, how has he worked, and how does he want to work in our lives. And let's correct some of the fake news by teaching the real news about who God is and how he functions in the world. Well, there are lots of examples, and you saw some of them in the video before the message. But the one that we're going to look at this morning is, God helps those who help themselves. Now, here's what you're going to understand as we go through this series. There's a grain of truth in every bit of fake news. And so God never calls us in the Bible to be passive, but God doesn't call us to get it all done ourselves. In fact, the one truth as you read from the beginning to the end of the Bible is this, I need help. I don't know about you, I need help. And I know that you need help too. And often our reluctance to call for help puts us in positions where life is out of our control and we wind up making matters worse by not allowing others, not allowing God to come alongside and provide what we cannot provide. Well, I started looking at a passage a couple of weeks ago to kick off the series. And then when the whole coronavirus thing hit, I said, oh, maybe I need to change that, what I'm going to talk about. But the more I thought about it, this passage and this principle actually fits exactly what we need when we think about the coronavirus and the stuff we're dealing with today. So if you have your Bibles, your iPad, your, I guess you can't use your iPad and phone if you're watching a service on that, follow along as I read a passage from Exodus chapter 17. I'm going to begin reading in verse 8. I'll read through verse 13, and let's read this strange account, but then come back and look how it can help us live a balanced perspective of trusting God, not completely trusting ourselves, but doing and following through with what God calls us to do and to follow through with. Follow along as I read. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow, I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his arms up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Now that's kind of an interesting story, but we need a little bit of a background to understand what's going on. So uh, let me uh, kind of walk you through who the players are. First of all, it begins by saying the Amalekites attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Well, first of all, let's uh, remember who the Israelites were, and maybe a question we need to ask regularly, where are we in the story? So if the Bible's God's unfolding story of love and grace, 
and the Amalekites attack the Israelites, where are we in the story? Well, let me give you a quick recursor. The Israelites had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God then, through Moses, delivers them miraculously out of Egypt, and they're making their way to the promised land. Now, they're going to have lots of bumps and twists and turns on the way, but we're in the early phases of the journey out of Egypt, moving to the promised land. That's where we are in the story. Well, who in the world are the Amalekites? Well, the Amalekites will prove to be a thorn in Israel's side from this point till the end of the Old Testament. The Amalekites were actually descendants of Esau. And the Amalekites don't disappear after this incident. In fact, Saul fought the Amalekites. And some of you may be aware of the incident where God tells Saul to completely destroy the Amalekites, but he doesn't do it. There are the Amalekites again. David has to fight the Amalekites. And when we come to the end of the Old Testament, Esther has an enemy. The Israelites have an enemy. His name is Haman, and Haman is an Amalekite. So all the way through the Old Testament, the Amalekites proved to be a thorn in the side of Israel. There's this bickering, fighting animosity between them all the way through. Well, if you look at the passage in Deuteronomy that describes this battle, you discover that the Amalekites actually came on the scene and they were picking off those lagging behind as Israelite was moving. This was not a frontal assault. They were attacking those lagging behind. The weak and the most vulnerable, the Amalekites come and they're killing the most vulnerable Israelites. Yeah, that's kind of what I would think too. So the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Well, beside the background, God calls us to balance. And one of the things you discover, not just in the beginning of the Bible, but in the beginning, the middle, and the end, is that God calls us to live this balance between trusting him, but following through and doing what he tells us to do. Now, let me give you a warning right up front. Two bits of fake news on both sides of the balance. On the one side of the balance are those that say and live, let go and let God. I'm going to do nothing. I'm going to stand and watch God deliver the day. I feel my weakness. I'm not able to do anything. I'm just going to sit and let God do everything. Let go and let God. Fake news. You never find that message in Scripture. On the other hand are those who say God helps those who help themselves. And so what I need to do is to get going. I need to get up, I need to get out there, try to, I build plans, I put my strategy into place, and I do it, and I really don't have to look to God too much because I'm able to pull this off, and God's gonna help those who help themselves. Fake news. There's a grain of truth in each of them, but the Bible calls us to a balance on those two points. Let me show you how that balance works out in this passage. We, first of all, are introduced to Moses and Joshua. Now, we know Moses. Moses was raised in the palace of Pharaoh. And back then, part of what it would have meant to have a royal upbringing would have meant that he had lots of military training in his background. There would have been strategy sessions. There would have been sessions on leadership. Moses was the trained military expert. So it kind of makes sense that when the Amalekites attack, Moses would have been front and center. 
This is the first passage in the Bible that introduces us to Joshua. Now, Joshua is kind of a familiar name to those that read the Bible. In fact, we're going to have a whole book named after him. But this is the introduction of Joshua as you're reading through the Bible. Who's Joshua? Well, Joshua will become Moses' successor. Joshua will become a military strategist. Joshua will become a disciple and someone who follows through with God's plan. But at this point, Joshua is just a person who God says through Moses, Joshua, I want you to go and lead the fight. Well, how does the fight work? The rest of verse 9 reads like this. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men, go out and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Now remember, Moses, the military trained strategist, he's the expert with lots of experience. Joshua's the novice with no training and no experience. What's the plan? Moses says, here's the plan. Joshua, you go take this group of slaves that are not battle-hardened and aren't really militarily trained. You take them and you go fight the Amalekites. I'll be on the hill over there watching. What do you think Joshua thought of that plan? I'm not exactly sure, but if I'm Joshua, I'm thinking, wait a minute. You're the military strategist with all the experience and expertise, and you're going to be on the hill, and the battle plan is you're just going to be up there watching, and I'm going to be out there fighting. I don't like the plan. Oh, yeah, we also meet another guy in the story. His name's Her. And uh, I'm not sure if you thought about this, but as you read through, it's kind of like the who's on first thing. So uh, maybe Moses says, now, Joshua, I want you to take her, okay? Uh, I want you to take him. Well, I, I thought you said take her. I did, take her. Yeah, well, do you want her or him? I told you, I want you to take her, which is him. That's kind of weird. Well, I digress, sorry. Well, there we have Moses. We've got Joshua and we have her. And how does the battle unfold? The battle unfolds this way. Moses has um, her up on the mountain, and as he lifts his hands with the staff of God in his hand, the Israelites are winning. But Moses, remember, is old at this point. He's getting kind of weak and frail. He's like 80. When he gets tired and his hands start to come down, the Amalekites start winning. Well, eventually they sit him down and he's sitting on a stone and they hold up his arms. And as long as the arms up that hold the staff of God, the Israelites are winning. They fall down and the Israelites are losing. And so eventually they figure out, okay, put your arms kind of on our shoulders. Make sure you hold the staff up. You sit down and we'll win the day. Well, that's kind of a weird account. I read lots of commentators this past couple of weeks. And through the years, I've heard lots of people say what Moses is doing on the, hall, on, on the hill, what's going on is X. And I have to say, I don't get it. Um, which reminds me, you ever see one of those pictures and it's kind of like just full of squiggly lines, there's nothing and you wonder who painted this thing, but then you're given the directions. Stare at the picture and if you just stare at the center of the picture, eventually a 3D image will emerge and you'll think that something inside's coming out to get you. You ever see those? Um, I don't know about you, I, I, I never get it. I stare and I stare and nothing ever comes out. Well, I read this passage and I read what some preachers and commentators say, I say, I don't get it. Here's the most common explanation of what's happening in the battle. Moses is on the mountain raising his hands in prayer. And so this is a passage on prevailing prayer. And so whether you're on the battlefield or whether you can't be on the battlefield, maybe you're on the hill, you can pray. And through prevailing prayer, you can, through God, accomplish great things. 
It never says prayer anywhere in the passage. And in fact, as you read through the Old Testament, sitting is never a position for prayer. Only once are people's hands raised in prayer like this. I don't think it's a prayer deal. In fact, if you make it a prayer deal, here's what often happens. If we make Moses praying with prevailing prayer and allowing Joshua to win the day, we wind up putting the focus on ourselves and the passage becomes self-help. So regardless of where you are, if you're older and infirmed and you're not able to participate, through prevailing prayer, you can accomplish. The focus isn't on us, but that's how those interpretations work. Other commentators say, no, it's not prayer, it's the staff. And the staff's kind of like a magic wand. And Moses raises the magic wand, and as he raises the magic wand, power kind of goes out. The magic goes from the wand, and the Israelites win as the magic's escaping from the wand. That's not how the Bible talks about. How about this one? The staff is kind of like the spear. Charge! Remember Braveheart? Charge! But Moses isn't the military leader. Joshua's the military leader. Well, what's going on? Well, the focus of attention really isn't Moses. And the focus of attention really isn't Joshua. Not a whole lot is said about what's happening on the battlefield at all. What is in view? Well, if you read the entire chapter, Exodus 17, you discover that the staff is front and center. In the beginning of Exodus 17, once again, the Israelites are complaining because they have no water. And what happens? God says, Moses, take the staff, touch the rock, and water comes out. The focus is the staff of God. In the second incident, uh, raise the staff and the Israelites win. Well, what is the staff then? Moses actually tells us right after this section. Look at verse 15. Moses built an altar and called it The Lord is my banner. Huh. The banner, the Lord is my banner. The staff clearly connected to the idea of banner, and banner somehow connects to what God's doing. Well, rather than just read the verse, let's talk a little bit about banner. So we've talked about background. We talked about balance, that we've got to do our part. God does his part. We trust God. We get going. We don't let go and let God. We don't believe God helps those who help themselves. What's the banner? Well, think in your life. What's a banner? A banner is is a sign. It's kind of like a logo um, that points to something beyond itself, points to something else. Schools have banners. Schools used to have or still have pennants. When you look at the logo, you look at the pennant, you look at the banner, it reminds you of a bigger reality behind the banner. The reality of the organization isn't in the banner. The banner reminds you, calls your attention to the greater reality that's represented by the banner. See how that works? Well, what's the banner in Exodus 17 in the battle with the Amalekites? Moses' staff is the banner. And the banner stands for God's presence and God's power. And God wants to reinforce the idea in this passage that it's not a stick, and it's certainly not old age Moses, and it's not inexperienced Joshua. It's God's presence and God's power 
that kind of wins the day. In fact, if you were to think back through everything we know about the Exodus thus far, you find a really interesting uh, um, beginning in Exodus 17. Up until this point, the Israelites basically had to do nothing to experience God's deliverance. Moses raised the staff, and the Red Sea opened. Moses raised the staff, the Nile turned to blood. Moses raised the staff, and all the curses come out on Egypt. The Israelites did nothing. There was no participation at all. They just stood and watched what God did. This is the first time that Israel is called to do something. But the fear is, if they do something and are victorious, they may be tempted to think that it was their power, it was their ability, it was their wisdom. And God says, no, I want you to remember, you may walk out the victory, but it's my power and my presence that actually bring the victory. The staff points to the reality behind the stick of God's power and God's presence. Now, as you turn a few books over in the Old Testament, you come to another verse that speaks about banner that actually moves us in the right direction. So from Isaiah chapter 11, we read these words. In that day, the root of Jesse, right? Jesse was David's father. So the root of Jesse, that's David. And we know that if you continue to trace out David's line, you eventually come to Jesus. So in that day, the root of Jesse, in other words, Isaiah is saying, in that day, the Messiah will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. The root of Jesse will stand as a banner. The rod points to the root of Jesse. The root of Jesse, that language, points to Jesus. Well, I don't know about you, but this passage uh, kind of gives us an invitation, doesn't it? It gives us an invitation not to let go and let God, not to become passive. That's fake news. Not to God helps those who help themselves and think like that, but to a balanced perspective. You know, we've got opportunity right now in the midst of what we're going through as a world. What do we do? We trust God and get going. Life is out of our control, but God's in control. Does that mean we do nothing? No, that means you follow the script, right? That means you wash your hands and you stay away from people if you don't have to, and you obey what the officials are saying, and you do all the right things, but we don't trust the medical um, professionals to be able to solve the problem. We don't trust our cleanliness or our ability or our social distance to solve the problem. We trust God and get going. We follow through with what we can do, ultimately trusting God for what only he can do. The truth of the Bible is not that God helps those who help themselves. The truth of the Bible is God helps those who can't help themselves. And I started by saying, I need help. And so do you. You need help to deal with the ups and downs and the heartaches and the pains and the brokenheartedness of life today. And we certainly need help with the disease that we all have, the virus that we all have, that virus called sin. And the Bible tells us that that virus is, or that, that virus, ha, everybody has that particular ailment 
And only Jesus is the solution to that. And so live with balance. Trust God and get going. God helps those who can't help themselves. And so when you're in a situation and you're feeling overwhelmed, that's a good place to remember that we're weak, we're frail, and we're not in control, but God is. Glance at yourself, but gaze at him. Connect with people and use technology to do that. And also remember, God helps those who can't help, them, help themselves. Therefore, trade up whatever trivial temporal things you may be trusting. Trade them in. And nothing like a little virus can show us how those things really do shake in our world. But Jesus in the gospel never shape. So move from the staff in Exodus 17 to the banner in Isaiah 11, and from Isaiah 11 to Jesus Christ, the incarnation, the cross, and the resurrection. Isn't it interesting that Isaiah 11, 10 ends this way? Ends this way. His resting place will be glorious. You ever thought about a cemetery and a grave being glorious? It is for Jesus because that grave is empty. His glory he gives to us because God loves to help those who can't help themselves. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for these reminders. And I'm sure that the situation in our world right now is causing us maybe concern and fear, maybe nervousness and isolation. But Lord, in the midst of all that, help us to realize that you're a God who helps those who can't help themselves. You call us to trust you, and then you give us things to do. And help us to somehow live out and figure out that balance of trusting you and getting going. And as we do that, may we love you, may we love and serve other people, people that you've called us to continue the mission that Jesus started. We pray in his name. Amen.